is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. Hello and welcome, everyone. My name is Tom Lutkin, and I'm a project manager here at the National Bureau of Asian Research. In today's podcast, we'll be exploring the issue of disaster management, particularly lessons and best practices from Northeast Asia. I'm very pleased to be joined by our guests, Dr. Takako Izumi of Tohoku University and Mr. T.H. Shi of Open Knowledge Taiwan, who each brings many years of experience to today's conversation. Dr. Izumi is Program Director of the APRU Tohoku University Multi-Hazard Program and part of the International Research Institute of Disaster Science at her university. Mr. Shi is a digital veteran as a founding member of Taiwan Internet Governance Forum and an expert participant in the UN's Committee on Global Geospatial Information Management for his experience in digital crisis response in Taiwan. Over the past year, NBR's program on disaster management, uh, have, we have learned that disaster management and disaster risk reduction are both based in part on our ability to plan for a disaster. This doesn't necessarily mean that we're ready for every aspect, but there should be training and education and other actions taken to build resilience uh, before a disaster strikes. I wanted to start us off with a question to both of our guests about the lessons that we can learn from disaster response and recovery from one of the worst natural disasters to happen in the past decades, the Great East Japan Earthquake of 2011. Um, uh, Dr. Zumi, I wondered if maybe I could start with you um, on your experiences with uh, that event and, and maybe some lessons that we learned in the aftermath. Hey, uh, thank you very much, Tom. And at the same time, thank you so much for your invitation and uh, giving me the opportunity to share uh, my thoughts and also the experience. So uh, the question is, what uh, lessons we learned from the Great East Japan Earthquake and Tsunami? And I'm from uh, Tohoku University in Japan, and it is located in Sendai, uh, uh, where it's very seriously, severely uh, affected by uh, this tsunami and, and earthquake. So the last 10 years, uh, this region worked so hard for recovery and still we are working uh, uh, the recovery and it's not uh, completed yet. So um, there are so many uh, lessons we learned uh, from this experience. So um, first of all, I, I will uh, yeah I will highlight a couple of points. Although as I said, there are so many, but I just like to highlight it some points. And first of all, is that um, first one is we cannot do more than we prepared. So that shows how important uh, we prepare in advance and before something happens. So this very simple message and very basic, but I think it is still the most important thing. Then um, secondly, I, I think um, we cannot rely on either uh, infrastructure or either you know, the uh, soft type of uh, preparedness. We need both and combination of the hard and soft types of uh, preparedness majors are very, very important. For example, infrastructure definitely it's necessary and it protects our lives and uh, a lot of things from the big, uh, you know, the serious damages. But beyond infrastructure, we still need some knowledge and um, 
Um, you know, we need to take, for example, the actions, for example, uh, evacuation. But that's that's come from the uh, decision making and decision making definitely comes from educational knowledge. So uh, uh, disaster education and uh, awareness raising activities and they also um, learn from their past history or experiences also definitely important. Then um, also uh, early warning system. Without early warning, um, you know, it's very difficult to take any actions, uh, response actions, and also the, you know, the preparedness. So uh, early warning is also the very important. Then, um, oh, although uh, there are many uh, developing countries uh, do not have that kind of uh, system, uh, you know, the accurate and, and proper systems. So that's a, also serious uh, issues, I think, and, and big concerns. And another point is that, uh, as I already mentioned, uh, it's related to the, the knowledge and education. And also, we have to understand the needs of the, you know, the people uh, requires um, special assistance, for example, um, elderly people and women, children and uh, people with disabilities. And even the evacuation centers, we tend to forget the need and care for these people, but actually it is very, very important. We cannot forget and during the response and recovery phases. So I think uh, we just, uh, I just wanted to summarize what we learned. Well, I think that uh, the earthquake happened in, in Japan, like uh, more than a decade ago, it uh, has taught us a lot of lessons. Uh, the first is that the, the types of the hybrid types of uh, uh, natural disaster, the, at that time, it was probably you know it's 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 just unbelievable. It's beyond everyone's preparedness in the past. So I would say the first thing is that uh, because this region is suffering from natural disasters on uh, probably on a monthly or yearly basis. So we really uh, I think the first lesson is that we have to learn from uh, each of other countries who are facing similar you know crisis. And because uh, each country's response to disaster is uh, quite different. Sometimes it's uh, the problem of legal structure. For example, in Taiwan, we we didn't have a, a special act on crisis, natural crisis response 22 years ago after the big, big earthquake, because everybody suddenly felt that we need a, an uh, infrastructure, infrastructure on the legal level to support government agency to share responsibilities and between the central and the local government. So I think the first thing is that we really need to learn from each other, and that's very precious experience out there. Uh, the second thing I think is much more important, probably for uh, uh, in 21st century, is the communication part of a uh, uh, natural crisis, uh, because communication is like everyone needs communication during natural disasters. Uh, when the power is cut, you know, your communication might go down. So you may not be able to rely on existing telco uh, infrastructure. You probably have only like old tech, a proven tech, like radio, a CB radio, that sort of things, which uh, is only, uh, can only be operated by uh, veterans or, you know, hammer, we call it the radio, you know, those uh, special, specialized peoples. And they are, in, they will be in dire need in that kind of crisis. So I'll say that uh, understanding that your power might be cut down during crisis 
and how do you preserve uh, the communication or the lifeline of communication between the vulnerables or stakeholders? It's something that you could try to uh, envision or imagine or uh, try to do something in practice. And there is something that affects Taiwan very much after the uh, Tokai earthquake. Uh, probably people out of the region, they don't know. It's the invention of a special messenger. It's called Lie. <laughs> <laughs> L-I-N-E. It was uh, the most popular messenger in Japan, Taiwan, Thailand, and to some degree in Indonesia. And that kind of messenger was, uh, I think it was created after the disaster because people need to, to find their relatives and try to find what's happening out there in other part of Japan. So someone from the internet startup, they built up the app now turn into a super app that everybody uses. <laughs> and uh, it's got huge penetration, not just in Japan, but in Taiwan and Thailand as well. So I say that that kind of uh, uh, advance of tech is, is a bit surprising to everyone. And uh, it's something that we need to have uh, in mind because uh, when your communication infrastructure is built upon private sector, there is something or some difficulty that you will be facing in times of crisis, yeah. So I'll say that the first one is learn, uh, do learn lessons from other countries. And the second is that the communication, preserving communication uh, is uh, very much an important and challenging issue for everyone. The next question is is dealing with the role of technology uh, in disaster response and preparation. And I might turn to TH first uh, on this one. Um, are there ways that technology can facilitate the preparation phase or or improve awareness essentially of um, disaster response in real time where where as perhaps just building off of the last point that you just made yeah. um, what role do you see for technology in this space and is there perhaps a, a limit to what technology can be used for or any caveats that you can see well, I probably will provide two or three solid cases, short cases. The first one is that uh, satellite phone. Satellite phone is not a new tech, right? So everybody, you know, it's been existing in the market. You can buy that, but it's expensive to use. So uh, about 12 years ago, Taiwan got hit by one of the deadliest typhoon uh, in the southern part of Taiwan, and it killed hundreds of people because of the mountain landslides and uh, heavy uh, rainfalls. And because uh, power was cut at that time, uh, and the crisis response team on the ground, they do have high-tech stuff. They have satellite radios. They have satellite phones. But they forgot to charge their battery. <laughs> so that just uh, rendered all phones useless at that time. So, that's, so that particular case says that uh, even you have a uh, high tech within your hand or even low tech or proven tech, you just need to uh, have a plan to maintain the readiness because the readiness of the tech and it costs a lot of money and training awareness. You, you, you have to check your battery status every few months. You probably die and it's a specialized version of satellite phone. So you can't just use uh, the average uh, uh, battery to charge it or to use it. And that, that's a very simple, you know, it's not even high tech at all. It's not soft tech. It's just, just phone. <laughs> all the phones are like brick, uh, were like brick at that time. So I think that meant uh, technology is good, but it, uh, it, 
it, it costs a lot to maintain the readiness and to put into action. So uh, that's the first uh, lesson I think that that groups has learned. And uh, I think the, the second part is that because uh, most of the even though, for example, in Taiwan, we have a, a national a center for uh, responsive uh, uh, crisis uh, technology development, sort of like, uh, an institute like that. So they, they had all they develop, develop a lot of the prototypes there. But in order for this prototype to be used or applied to certain vulnerable groups or communities, they uh, I think uh, one of the lessons they, they've learned is that they really need to get the users of tech on the first day of development. They couldn't just say, oh, we had this idea and that idea so people could use their phone to say they could input hundreds of words on their mobile phones, but that wouldn't be the case. So another case is that because uh, we uh, the tech sometimes it, if it goes wrong, it could be very wrong. So a, a good case is that it happened. Uh, we have a, a system called public warning system. So uh, every 4G firms could support that kind of system, get a warning from the government. And because it was a simple UI uh, misdesign. So someone he 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 was intending to send to like a thousand people in certain geospace geo uh, 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 area, but then because of the drop down list, he chose the wrong region and, and range of that. He sent that message to everyone in Taiwan, which is that he was only intended to send to one thousand people. Then more than twenty million people got that message. So that cause headache for a lot of people. You say you had tech there, but a simple uh, misconfigure in the UI uh, turned that response into a disaster. It's just like the uh, the case that happened, maybe like the Hawaii uh, missile warning. <laughs> the case incident happened a few years ago. It is a bit like that. So I, I said that technology uh, is good. That you really, when you are designing the system to support crisis response, you need to have the users bring the users first uh, during the initial planning stage. I think that's very important. Yeah, and don't don't forget about that. Yeah. Um, definitely, technology and science and innovation uh, are key right now uh, to think about uh, preparedness and disaster risk reduction. Um, for example, and um, you know, understanding risk is definitely important and hazard mapping uh, to create those things and tools. And we usually use modeling and a lot of simulations and you know, the creating such a verbal and I mean visual um, and the tools, then people much easier to understand what kind of uh, impact and damage they can face once a bigger disaster happens. And also, um, um, and like drones and AIs, you know, there's so many things and, and right now uh, already uh, used for uh, um, disaster risk reduction and preparedness. And also um, the interesting thing is that we uh, recently published the uh, uh, a sort of the uh, case studies. It's called 30 Innovations for Disaster Risk Reduction. I developed this one with uh, uh, together with some universities uh, United Nations universities and University of Tokyo, Keio University. And this collects uh, uh, innovative DRR uh, majors. So, um, of course, it's, it's a lot of technologies included. As I mentioned, it's like a drone and early warning 
system, very advanced early warning system to detect the very even small shaking and earthquake, then our train will stop in Japan, uh, even though we don't feel it, but you know that kind of early warning can detect very small wave. So that kind of uh, technology are included here. But another thing I'd like to emphasize is that we also took the uh, questionnaire survey uh, among the, uh, the DR experts and professionals. And what would be the, the most effective uh, DR innovation in, in among um, your, all, uh, all of uh, the, these 30 uh, DR majors? And, the, and, and also that this includes both products and those approaches. Innovation in, is not only for high-tech products, but rather we consider approach is also uh, uh, innovation. So that the, the first one, the top and innovative, most effective, I mean, uh, DR innovation is that uh, the community-based disaster risk re reduction approach. So uh, it's not even the advanced technology or innovation, but rather they thought that kind of approach and concept is the most important thing. So. Um, so I think the message is that even though we have high tech and advanced technology and innovations, without those core, you know, in 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 principle and in, in you know the, the approach, and those advanced technology cannot be you know effective as much as as effective as you know that possible we expect. So uh, the combination and the principle and you know inclusive, uh, you know, participatory uh, approach and also those technology and high-tech you know, things, is if, if we combine that would be most ideal uh, preparedness and disaster risk reduction uh, majors, I think. That's fantastic. I think that we discussed in one of our earlier uh, meetings that technology needs to be facilitative and, and not, not a crutch or not seen as sort of this thing which can solve all of these problems for us. Rather, it helps okay. us solve the problems more efficiently. Uh, although I hope the day is not far off when this next question will be a reminder of something in the past and not a reminder of something which is currently ongoing. As of this recording in November of 2021, the world is still dealing with the ongoing effects of a global pandemic. In some ways, this has been a global natural disaster uh, in the form of a disease outbreak. It has left no corner of the globe and no aspect of our lives untouched. So to address this current situation, I wanted to ask both of you, how has the COVID-19 pandemic upended traditional disaster management and disaster preparedness and response? And how do you see it, uh, the current pandemic, altering the disaster management process and landscape going forward? Um, I think I might start with uh, Izumi-san. Yes, we are still uh, uh, facing uh, difficulties uh, from the COVID-19 globally. So, um, you know, the the difficulty is that uh, during the pandemic, we also uh, experienced a lot of natural hazards. So uh, COVID-19 natural hazards, we have to you know, deal with both. And and if it was a um, rather uh, climate related, for example, the flood uh, or cyclone and um, the countermeasures for natural hazards and COVID-19 is completely opposite. For example, for flood and cyclone, the evacuation is that we consider it the most effective you know, preventive measure. 
So are we, you know, in usually order evacuation order uh, will be issued. But, you know, we also have to think about, uh, you know, that will be very uh, risky because usually the, the evacuation center is very crowded and we have to forget about social distancing. But for COVID-19, um, you know, stay home and rather, you know, keeping the social distance is the most effective way. So these two things cannot be, you know, go and work together. So that's the major difficulty during the uh, COVID-19 uh, when we also both, I mean, face both to uh, face to the uh, natural hazards. So there are different, uh, you know, some of the different cases in some countries. Um, unfortunately, during the COVID-19, um, they took the mass evacuation and that also causes a spike of the, you know, the increase of uh, COVID-19 cases. But on the other hand, and in some countries, even though they took evacuation actions uh, very actively, the cases are not much difference, different. So there are two uh, cases and most likely the ones who did not, uh, you know, the cause a lot of cases after evacuation is that they took a lot of preventive measures uh, at the evacuation center. They kept uh, social distancing and they put, you know, the hand sanitizers and also the checking the temperature all the time. And also uh, they used hotels and training centers, not the traditional or designated uh, evacuation centers to keep, you know, the social distancing. So they arranged more you know, evacuation centers. So, uh, you know, these uh, preparedness measures made, uh, you know, such a difference. So uh, even though we encounter those difficulties, as long as we know that risk and we prepare, that kind of uh, you know, risk can be avoided. So, um, so these two things uh, and, and, and in, even in the future, um, you know, these compound hazards, the risk of these compound hazards will be increased. So uh, we have to remember, uh, but still we don't have to, you know, they're scared. There should be the way uh, we can prepare again and uh, we can avoid uh, these um, uh, the risks uh, in advance. Well, I think the, the most uh, interesting development during COVID is the introduction of a surveillance tech, surveillance technology in general sense. Some for uh, for example, the the case is in Taiwan because uh, uh, during the uh, I would say the peace time, okay, I, I labeled it as a peace time. You generally uh, the government isn't allowed to introduce by law isn't allowed to introduce uh, some certain aspects of uh, surveillance technology because the, the technology might be used for criminal fighting, like you use CCTV cameras on the street, so you could identify identify human flow or the traffic or the response of a certain type of outbreak of COVID out there. Uh, it was like in the people on the ground who need to go there and check and report. So that's the traditional way of uh, DRR. But now because uh, uh, I think the government here uh, is so much uh, 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 shocked by having a certain outbreak out there that couldn't be controlled. So I think for the past uh, almost 24 months, uh, we've introduced a lot of uh, surveillance technology. Some are video surveillance. Some are more uh, about uh, uh, interlinking of uh, databases on citizens. And to some extent, that's good because the government get better understanding of who might get affected out there at which time and uh, where has he or she been traveling. 
So you know all the trails of a certain a particular group of people, for example, nurses or doctors or flight attendants. But on the other hand, your uh, society is giving so much power to the government. Is there any ways to uh, identify whether these technologies are actually helping or it's more like a symbolic or uh, theater out there that, you know, by introducing tech, you could fight COVID? sort of thing like that. So I think the biggest change here as to DRR is the uh, introduction of uh, a lot of surveillance tech. And uh, those surveillance tech are now being considered used by the healthcare systems, which they used to have uh, a certain role in response because they need to rush to the scene. They need to rescue people. They need to do a lot of medical checks. But now they have uh, they alternative data sources providing by other government agencies to help them to assess whether they should send how many people or test for to the ground, what kind of preparedness they have to, like personal protection equipment they have to bring. So I think that that, that kind of change is quite dramatic here in Taiwan, but I'm not sure the situation in some other parts of the world. It's probably more dramatic in uh, this part of Asia. Yeah, that's the biggest change uh, we've seen and everybody felt that way. Yeah. As we speak, uh, the world leaders are currently in Glasgow, uh, Scotland, discussing the uh, fate of climate change cooperation in the world. And as we all know, climate change is shifting our baselines for many of, of today's worst natural disasters. A natural disaster that might have occurred once in 100 years, only a few decades ago might now occur once every 10 years and um, previously unheard of natural disasters might now be possible. Uh, so I wanted to ask both of you, um, how can we better account for changes brought about by climate change and what are the steps that are being taken um, in the disaster planning process to account for this warming world that we all are living in now? Right, I do have a lot of uh, small cases, so I'll share first. Uh, it, it just happened three weeks ago because, uh, uh, you know, the climate change is so real and it affects Taiwan as well. And it's uh, it's about the rainy season right now in October, starting from October. So a group of uh, students, very young, they're in their elementary school age. Uh, during the last uh, uh, big holiday here in Taiwan, they went down to uh, one of the uh, like uh, the mountain side to have some experiment uh, experience trips out there. And uh, a few teachers brought them to that site. And the Central Weather Bureau, which is the meteorological, uh, the government agencies uh, supporting the weather broadcast here, they did issue warnings that when those people shouldn't go there or they shouldn't travel to that part of area because of sudden rain, thunder rain in the afternoon. And it could bring heavy rain and flooded the small creeks out there or the rivers in the mountains. But they decided to uh, ignore it uh, um, on the first half, uh, half of the day, which is the morning. But then when they tried, to, they saw the clouds is, was forming on the foreground uh, at the top of the mountain. They decided to pull it off. They decided to evacuate. But the river has already flooded. So they decided to take the chance and walk across the river which is was about to be flooded so all of them were you know 
they've been washed down to the uh, downstream and all of them just died. So that kind of story uh, uh, tells us that even you got um, the warning system out there, you got the uh, a government agency which is quite responsible, they've issued warnings, and the people who might be affected, they've already got the message. But their decision, they decided to ignore the risk, and they sacrificed a lot of lives in that incident. It caused national attention. So I'll say that case uh, brings uh, to uh, the point that even if uh, during the, uh, it's a very small case uh, comparing to the big topic in climate change, but it affects people's life. And when the people, they got, okay, they got this message, they got the uh, good government supporting them with uh, warnings, but they, why do they decide to ignore how the, the decision-making process is probably not, or the risk they they felt that they could uh, embrace, did not really, uh, uh, how do I say, it, it, it's, it's really ignoring the risk is one of the most uh, terrible things uh, on the ground. So I'll say that uh, probably even with all the systems out there and uh, the, the groups, the people might be affected, they must be trained to have awareness on that kind of incident. You just need to drop that trip and try to just don't go there and make the right decision at the right time. Otherwise, you even with a very capable government, very good warning, and a very uh, use would still suffer and people would still suffer the crisis. Yeah. And, um, you know, we already uh, seeing uh, it's happening. Climate change is happening before uh, we thought natural hazards is, is just a natural uh, phenomena. But lately, we you know, feel the change compared to 10 years ago. The intensity and frequency of, for example, the floods are completely different. Even in Japan, we have more floods, more typhoon. You know, it, it's, it's everyone already witnessed uh, the change. So, um, as I said before, we thought it's just a natural phenomenon. There's nothing we can do. But now people started to understand and recognize this is probably because of the climate change. So in that sense, there should be something we can do both, you know, the, uh, to contribute to uh, uh, reduce, uh, reducing the, the CO2, then probably it also can reduce the risk of natural hazards. The, you know, the, it's, it's, uh, uh, it avoid uh, the scale can be, you know, the, the bigger or in a more serious, we can probably avoid that kind of things. So uh, in that sense, uh, we probably more recognized there should be something we can do to change the situation or rather uh, we can reduce the risks uh, for the future. So um, in that sense, um, already the important to understand the risks. Then uh, in addition to that, I think uh, it's very important to uh, communicate the risk is already identified and, and, and addressed um, already. Then, uh, you know, the approach we should not uh, forget participatory and approach and considering the needs of the uh, vulnerable people. So these are very much traditional ways we have been doing in you know, so many years. So that kind of things we should continue with, but only the way is, is slightly different, like uh, risk identification. As I mentioned, we have more technology and also AI. And you know the a lot of uh, uh, advanced tools were already developed even in developing countries. So uh, we should definitely take 
best use of you know these innovations and technology as well. Then uh, another thing we recently started talking and using the term is systemic risk. So uh, right now we are you know considering hazard and one by one, and this is the one hazard. So we have to think about the risks caused by this or something. But now we know the climate change and natural hazards cause more wider you know, impacts. So uh, we call them as in systemic risk. So socially, socially and economically, and you know all these you know to understand their the future uh, consequence, then we should have a much broadened uh, you know the idea and to understand all these you know this, the, the the different types of risks we need uh, to to work with the different uh, you know the, and the experts from the different fields and that kind of collaboration definitely is more uh, needed. So um, what we need to do is that probably we have we, we have been doing it should be continued but plus we have to to strengthen what we see and also that how we can understand the risks and how we can you know the perceive that consequence and having those more you know different types of hazards together compound hazards and you know the, the different types of hazards not only natural hazards but rather technological and pandemic so all these you know the hazards and disasters are you know we also call it all hazards approach and are not really you know the limited uh, the, the risk is caused by one single event but rather we have to think about you know the wider you know the, the impacts so that's how uh, uh, probably we have to strengthen that kind of capacity uh, working together with the different experts I think I I, I do have a, a point uh, added to the systematic risk. risk I think for the case in Taiwan because uh, people could not uh, actually travel abroad so uh, it it was like maybe 100 people could travel abroad now that less than one people person would travel abroad so during the last and this year because of, uh, first because of climate change more rains intensity is higher and the second because people stay in Taiwan they don't have places to go so they usually venture into the the seaside the mountainside the naturally risky uh, places uh, on the island so we're seeing a trend, a definite trend of more deaths, actual deaths on the road, in the mountain, on the sea because of fires. And that that number is climbing and we are not seeing a stop to that beyond 20, maybe next year. So I think that that, that kind of risk was not anticipated by a lot of people, but people started to venture into places and sites where they um, used to go there you know travel abroad is like you go to big urbanized world and there's no safety concern but now we're seeing a trend of like that sudden flood you now sudden big waves hitting offshore because of typhoon and people really die there so i think that that's one uh uh probably ignored uh, systematic risk uh, on, on the ground level and we're seeing casualties out of this situation. That's yet another another angle in which the COVID pandemic has has changed how our how we work and how how we are impacted by natural hazards. Um, 
thank you both for your excellent responses. I wanted to take a few minutes here at the end just to give you each a chance um, to provide some closing remarks, maybe on the context of um, your thoughts today, uh, how they can how they can lead us to maybe have a better disaster management process in other parts of the world, perhaps. This is a South Asia focused um, project, but we did want to, you know, and it brought especially to light today, we did really want to bring in some perspectives from the greater, the broader Indo-Pacific. So um, any any sort of closing remarks each of you might have? Um, I might start with uh, TH again, just to throw you off, but. Well, I think the improvement uh, in the legal structure of uh, DRR is quite important, especially in Taiwan, uh, because uh, in crisis response, you have government as a major responder, and they do have the uh, command power to order some sorts of a, a government agency to respond on the ground. So uh, when the first uh, act on crisis response was out 22 years ago, it got modified uh, at least 10 times in the past 20 years. So I think it, it tried to catch up with realities and uh, the, I would say, the progression of a crisis, you know, in, 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 terms, of, uh, in terms of legal structural reform. I think that, that one is probably uh, much uh, not appreciated by a lot of uh, first responders, but for a lot of government agencies, you just need an authorization from the legal infrastructure to support them to act on the ground so they could have a budget, a sufficient uh, authorization on that. And the second thing I would like to emphasize is always about the communication act, uh, the part of the uh, DRR. It, uh, it happens to everyone, everybody could got cut off internet. And how do you respond to a request or even collaborate with your team members when you are out of power or even internet. That's something need to be uh, envisioned uh, in your uh, maybe DRR plans. Uh, and that happens all the time, maybe not just in Northeast Asia, but in South Asia to a lot of uh, places as well. So I would like to emphasize that these two parts of uh, DRR. Uh, if we think about the, the situation globally, and we can still see the difference um, Know, this kind of capacity, DR capacity between uh, developed countries and developing countries. And um, because of that, and, and more people, I mean, in different, I mean, um, developing countries are much more vulnerable to a lot of natural hazards compared to the, the people in developed countries. So that's the current situation. And if the climate change is, you know, it's, it's much more obvious, then the gaps will much bigger. So, uh, you know, the people is, is already vulnerable. It becomes much more, you know, vulnerable. So, uh, first of all, we have to think about how we can fill in the gaps, how we can, you know, the contribute to improving and strengthening the DR capacity in developing countries, which will be suffered much more compared, I mean, from the climate change in the future. So uh, that's one thing uh, I'm very concerned and, and probably we need to, uh, you know, to work harder because we you often says hazard uh, stays as hazards in developed countries, but hazards become much more disasters in developing countries. So, you know, that that's very important and it's things we cannot uh, forget. Then um, 
The second point, probably, uh, uh, we still need to uh, uh, to come up with some ideas in, in localization. And, um, you know, even though we said and we have to help the uh, uh, developing countries and the people, uh, vulnerable I mean, the people, but still they have so many ideas. It doesn't have to be very advanced. It doesn't have to be very uh, technical, but rather they know their uh, their situation. They know their, you know, their, the capacity and um in you know the culture so uh they may be the ones who know how to you know to reduce the risks much more than us so uh, we really have to to work together and we have to understand all these uh, the cultural uh you know things and also the history then combine with our knowledge um probably from the uh, technology and also the science and we can mix it then again it can be very very ideal and there are so many things we can help but there are so many things they can, you know, to do, create their own resilience, disaster resilience, I think. And, and for example, in, in, in one country, um, there is it's quite poor, uh, there are poor, I mean, the areas and it's, it's slum. And those people, even people don't realize people are exist in, in these places. In that case, we can, it's very difficult to create, for example, the, the hazard mapping then and in that sense and some countries use ai or you know a lot of drones and technology and create a map and hazard map then you know we know how to prepare the urban planning and you know settings so um that kind of things is is still very important because even though we are very uh you know the, the advanced society but still on the other hand there are even people who are not recognized uh, in their own countries so uh, that kind of collaboration is is it will be very helpful, and still it's very uh, how to call them. Uh, it's it's very uh, common idea in the or already traditional idea, but collaboration, it's definitely uh, uh, important things. Different sectors and different fields and different level, global level and national level and local level. That kind of things we still keep, you know, the saying. It's very important. That's what we needed. Then uh, you know the and, and like us academia side and scientific society we also uh, there are some things we can contribute a lot towards you know this is practical actions on the ground so that kind of cooperation that's also the, our uh, homework because we tend to you know concentrate on researches and writing papers but rather there are more things we can contribute to the you know the, the actions on the ground. That's fantastic and an excellent segue towards um, some closing thoughts. Thank you both so much for your excellent contributions. I've uh, I've been working on this for a year and I've still learned so much in the short time that I've had with the both of you. So thank you again. Um, as Izumi-san just mentioned, um, the importance of collaboration is something that is is a key feature of this program and i'm very glad that both of you brought this up um, over the course of this podcast because in about a week we'll be speaking with two more experts this time from bangladesh and from india about some of these same questions and how they apply specifically in south asian contexts and i think that you have set us up very well for that conversation so thank you both so much for your time thank you for your efforts over the course of the past year and it has been a pleasure speaking with you this morning. And from the National Bureau of Asian Research, uh, this is Tom Letkin signing off.
Asia Insight Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.